You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today it comes from John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent them into the world, so I have, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire also that I desire also whom you have given me, that who you have given me may be with me where I am, to see your glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You've appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Lord, our zeal consumes us because our foes, they forget your words. Your promise, your promises, they are well tried. And we, your servants, we love them. We want to love them more. We are small and despised, yet we, we do not want to forget your precepts, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found us out indeed, Lord, but your commandments are our delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. We pray you would give us understanding that we may live forever in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good evening, everyone. I'm Clint, one of the pastors here. Uh, Christ Church, if I don't know you yet, I'm eager to know you, eager to get to know you. Come up after the service and introduce yourself, please. Be sure to get to know people around you, who, who um, many of whom belong here, in a sense that they're members here at Christ Church and have bound themselves to us as a local body, and we would be eager to talk to you about what that means as well. Uh, we gambled a little bit today with Nathan off gallivanting in Texas. That's right, he always listens to the podcast when I preach, so I'm like talking to Nathan right now. We'll just cut that part out. Um, I was gallivanting a bit in Denver. Uh, our boys had a basketball tournament this weekend, so we gambled a little bit. And Patrick's like, what do I do if your plane, uh, I thought he was going to say like break down and doesn't fly. He's like, crashes. I'm like, well, then you I just preach the sermon that I email you. And so that was the plan. That was plan B. I'm so thankful that plan A happened. But I showed up in the first uh, the meeting where we pray before the service, bloodshot eyes, puffy bloodshot eyes, a raspy voice, and they're all looking at me with condescending looks, like, you've been in Colorado? And I'm like, yes, and I'm thinking, what? I do need to confess to you all that I did do something. I yelled at the referees a lot. And I opened my eyes under the water at the pool a lot. So that's, this is me and this is all of me right in front of you. Confession. Speaking of basketball, when, when, we, when we first adopted Ivan, he had never seen a basketball. And he was all in on soccer already, but he didn't, hadn't seen a basketball. And we had this thing where we would record um, his prayers. Is that wrong to record your kid while they're praying like, phones are so easy to get out and just hit record on. Either I was first doing it just audio, and then Joanna's just like, I'm going to video this kid like, while he's praying. Because we were just uh, taken back by his passionate prayers, even in the broken English that he had. And I can talk all about him I want because he's not here, and this isn't awkward for him, right? He does not listen to my podcast yet, or the podcast of these sermons. But one time he was dribbling, or he was dribbling around all day that day, and he prayed, Thank you, God, that I dribbled a hundred times. And, and it's just sweet when you see your kids, at least, a lot of it's mimicking. We know this, right? We're training them up in the Lord. A lot of it is mimicking. But, but when things start to take hold and start to express themselves in prayers of what they're thankful for and what they care about, what they want to see God do, we haven't taken the step of like, I don't know, 
YouTubing or Instagramming our kids' prayers. That would probably be a little overboard. But look what God did. The Father permagrammed his son's prayer for us to pick apart, to learn from. And though it's felt a bit awkward this week for me to basically just do that, pick apart someone's prayer, and not just anyone's prayer, but God's prayer, as awkward as that may be, we should know and we should be encouraged that as we do that, we are not only just understanding the content of Jesus' prayer here in John 17, but we're seeing his heart in a very real way. We're knowing him better in a very real way. And we are, in a very real way, fulfilling the very things that he prays for us in this prayer by studying this prayer, by knowing this prayer better. So let's dive into Jesus' prayer. What we'll see before we get done this evening are three things, very straightforward, that Jesus is praying first for himself, then he is praying for his first disciples, and then finally he's praying for the future church. And again, as we pick apart God's prayer, we get the privilege of seeing God's priorities, tasting and seeing his purposes and his plan. They're all here for us, wide open. They're here for us to learn. They're here for us to cherish, to learn to cherish the things that Jesus cherishes, to pray the things that he prays, to long for the things that he longs for. So first, a prayer for himself. Verses uh, one through five. The setting of this prayer is after Jesus finishes his lengthy farewell discourse, chapters 13 to 16. Jesus, you remember back in 13, humbly washed his disciples' feet, pointing them to how he is going to cleanse them through his death very soon, and leaving them for an example, an example for them to live out among one another in the world. He promises them the indwelling Holy Spirit. He guarantees them that he is, as the Son, the only way to be redeemed and saved and have access to the Father we saw in 14. He told them that though the world that has opposed him will oppose them too, to not lose heart because he has overcome the world. And he's about to show them how he will overcome the world. This is the context we find ourselves in when Jesus begins his prayer. He finishes this faith-inducing speech and he's about to be arrested. The hour has come. The hour that he's been mentioning over and over in the book of John. It's not quite here yet. It's not quite here yet. It's now here. The Jewish leaders who have rejected Jesus and who he claims to be and the words that he teaches, they will soon bear down on this man, this God-man. They will arrest him. They will put him on trial. They will approve of his brutal beating. They will mock him at his execution. And yet, the great mission of Christ to redeem, to rescue, to reconcile people back to his Father, it's underway. And it will end a bloody mess on a cross, but it won't end there. We know there's more to come. We know there's victory to come, but the disciples didn't know that yet. They didn't even know the arrest was coming. They had heard rumors of arrest, but they believed their king would overcome such earthly powers in an earthly strength kind of way. 
As we saw earlier in John's gospel, Jesus, God the Son, he came from God the Father, giving up this divine presence of the Father, the bright, perfect, awesome wonder, perfect character, perfect fellowship, kindness, power, love, and community that he shared with the Father forever. He gave that up. Kind of glory that imposed praise from the angels continuously. He did that in order to put on this vulnerable, diable man suit. Became a truly human life with all its weaknesses, with all of its temptations, so that he might represent us in perfect obedience, represent us in an undeserved death for his part, and lead out in a gloriously victorious resurrection for us in the future. Now, in order to truly save us, he had to have emptied himself of that glory. And since the hour of his arrest and trials and torture and death and even resurrection have now come, he's focused on one thing and one thing only. And it is not what you and I tend to focus on when we pray and when we are facing any sort of opposition or suffering. No one has to tell Jesus what's coming. He's God. He knows what's coming. He and the Father have planned it. He and the Spirit are executing it. They're in perfect harmony and unity since eternity past. They know everything that's about to happen. He knows the pain of beard being pulled out, what it'll feel like so soon. He knows that the whip interwoven with bone fragments will embed themselves in his back. He knows that. He'll tear away flesh. He knows that his own created image bearers will mock and spit on him. He knows the physics of crucifixion. He knows that eventually his wounds will give way and he won't be able to pull himself up for breath again. And that he will die of exhaustion and of suffocation. He knows that's coming. He knows this all better than any doctor that can analyze it, better than any executioner can pull it off. More than that, he knows the weight of billions of of people and the guilt of their sin that is about to be poured out on him. Perhaps all of this is on his mind. We see in other gospel accounts in our New Testament that indeed when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, these things are on his mind and he is praying about them. Yet even then he doesn't pray for them to go away and here he doesn't even acknowledge them. We'd expect him like us perhaps to focus on the suffering he's about to endure now that the hour has come. But no, Jesus has in mind something greater. He cares about something greater, a greater good that will swallow up all the suffering he's about to endure and will overcome and undo all the suffering that has ever taken place. So what does Jesus pray for for himself? If not escape from danger, if not a lessening of the pain, a numbing of his body, of his soul, what? The son prays, that the Father will glorify the Son. Jesus asks his Father to clothe him in the splendor that 33 years prior Jesus emptied himself of for our sake at the incarnation. Jesus longs 
for the joy, for the glory of being in his Father's presence in that unique way once again. That unique way that he has always shared with the Father in eternity past. Now over and again, in the Old Testament, God rejects any thought or hint that he would share that glory with anyone other than himself. And so we should know that as Jesus asks directly for God the Father to share that glory with him, to glorify him, to clothe him in splendor, and to let the world see it, he's claiming to be defined himself once again. The Old Testament is also jam-packed with God's clear dedication to showing off his greatness, his splendor, and his character up against this evil opposition of the serpent that came in in Genesis 3 and the humanity that has embraced his ways from Adam all the way down to Judas and all the way down to us in faithless human soul after faithless human soul. Jesus knows that the Father deserves praise and honor from his creation. Jesus has known his Father from eternity past and their mutual love and their worship of one another and the Spirit. That's right. God worships himself. Did you know that? God does not commit idolatry. He does not disobey the first commandment. We would be wise to follow him in that way, in valuing what is most valuable as he does. And how great that we were created out of a very overflow of that worship. And how great that we were called, even as we saw in Psalm 98, to join in to that worship. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voices now and sing all praise, all honor, all value belongs to him. And here Jesus is calling out for him to be acknowledged in that as well. Now once he's died, once he's risen, once he's been exalted, and once people perceive what it is that Jesus has done for them on the cross and in the resurrection, glory to both Jesus and the one that sent him will explode. 3,000 new believers in one day are coming in Acts. And guess what, friend? That happens all the time now across the world. The Father and the Son are in this together. The Father may indeed have to strike the Son here, as we see promised in Isaiah 53, The son may suffer and die, but they are in one accord and headed toward one end. Glory for the son, glory for the father. Jesus is praying here, let me resume my proper place by your side in heaven. And in so doing the world, they will see how wonderfully loving and powerful to save you actually are. Let's get this done, father. Jesus says, put me on the cross and let's win back a portion of the world that has been lost at the fall and all will see how wonderful you are, especially in how you do it. Win out of weakness, Father. Save them by causing me to die, Father. Jesus longs for the Father to ultimately receive the glory, the credit, the worship, the awe-inspiring wonder in the hearts of the multitudes. There is a huge debate going on right now in the world. Did you know this? Two of them, actually. One is less important because it only matters really to Americans, and that's between LeBron James and Michael Jordan. Who is the GOAT? Who is the GOAT? 
the greatest of all time. G-O-A-T. And in the world of soccer, World Cup, you, nobody even knows what's going on with the teams because all that matters right now is, is Messi the greatest of all time or is Ronaldo the greatest of all time? Guys, I'm entranced by it to some degree too, but all these guys really do is put a round rubber thing into a net in their respective professions that we really overly pay them for. Neither of them are the real GOAT. Why so much debate about who is the greatest of all time? Yet in every corner of the world, in every heart and soul in this world, there's this debate about who is the greatest of all time. Am I a human, independent, autonomous being, the greatest of all time in my universe? Or is there someone who made me, someone I'm responsible to, someone who I owe my very life to for forever? Jesus is the greatest of all time. Way to go, LeBron. You put a ball in a net. The Father sent the Son with authority over all flesh. He was able to heal any disease. He was able to cast out any demon. He was able to calm any wave. Oh yeah, and he was the boss of everyone and everything that ever existed. And why? To make it crystal clear who he was and what authority he had to win back rebels who had no rights when they stood in his presence. He is indeed the goat. He's here to undo everything that's bad or wrong that has ever happened in the world. Booyah, Ronaldo, you haven't done anything. And with this authority over flesh on clear display in his miracles and his signs, Jesus slowly but surely revealed to his disciples and then through them to the world, even to us, this way of eternal life. And what is eternal life? It's nothing short of this, knowing the one who has everlasting life. That is what eternal life means, knowing the Father by knowing the perfect manifestation of that Father, namely the Son. The temporal life says this, friends, what am I wearing? What do people think of me? How can I get more of that which runs out so quickly, more money, more popularity, more goals achieved, more props on social media, more prestige at work, more approval of those who I care about, more physical pleasure, more soothing escape. But the eternal life says that all of that is a chasing of the wind. Eternal life says, I want more of God. How can I get more of God right now? Not just when I die. How can I get more of God right now? Jesus came to show us who God is in person, in humility, and knowing the Father himself so personally, he came and showed his disciples the first tastes of true eternal life. Know me now, Jesus says. Know my Father forever. Christian, is eternal life for you just the thing you're waiting for when you die? Get what you can now. Eternal life is coming when it's all over. 
Or are we longing for more of God every day despite our troubles, despite our pains? Are we seeking to know the Son and know the Father more every day? If not, what makes us think that we truly have eternal life now if we don't really want more of it? And if we don't really want more of Him? Jesus came and accomplished His mission perfectly. And now He's ready As he prays here to embrace the suffering of the cross, to come back from the dead, to indwell his followers by his spirit perfectly, and then to propel them out on the next phase of this mission. Jesus wraps up this prayer for himself by repeating this ask. Lord, take me back to your presence. Show your glory with me. Share your glory with me that we've always shared. And at this point, it is tempting to ask, did Jesus just pray, yo, dad, get me out of here, hook me up with that glory, glorified body, and and, and let's get back to the awesome friendship and and in-person relationship that we shared for all time? Is this Jesus' final exit plan? In one sense, yes, he's transitioning. But he's not bouncing on us, right? We know from the previous chapters that we've been studying. It's better that he leaves us. In a much more truer sense, Jesus' prayer is not just to bounce out of the earth into heaven. He's not just saying, get me out of here. He's saying, Father, let's really get started and get going down here with our mission to undo the curse of the fall. He's not looking to escape the mess He's about to fix the mess and get intimately involved in the mess of every single person's life in a unique way as he indwells his people and sends them out on mission to love one another and to share the gospel. So second, we see Jesus praying directly for his first disciples. Before praying for his disciples, he wants to make crystal clear who his disciples are, so he identifies them. This is verse 6 through 10, 11 roughly. It's just a long description of who the disciples are. The disciples are those Jesus has manifested the Father's name to. Jesus he himself bears the name of the Father by being the perfect expression of the Father's character. And these disciples know Jesus and have followed Jesus. The disciples are those that the Father has given as a gift to Jesus. So in some mysterious way, the disciples were first the Father's. And somehow the Father chose them and gave them to the Son. That's what Jesus is praying here and acknowledging. This gift of disciples from the Father to Jesus, this choosing of some out of the rebellious world, was not rooted in anything intrinsic to the people, to the disciples themselves. They were part of the wicked world. But God gave them to Jesus out of the world which is the functional equivalent to Jesus himself choosing them out of the world, which is what he said he did when he was speaking to them in chapter 15. Here's the thing, guys. God's loving arm extends towards the world, this tribe of rebellious human beings that oppose him, and he graciously, as they run away from him, plucks some from the world in order to, to save them. 
and this unconditionally electing love of our God and gifting of us to his son Jesus ought to compel nothing but humility and gratitude in us as far away from self-pride as possible. None of us deserve to be saved. God did not look down the quarter of time and go, Charles, he's got what it takes. Mark, he's got what it takes. Eric, that's the one I want on my team. No. He graciously plucks us out of our rebellion that we're born into and that we would voluntarily continue in had he not saved us from it. How else could all the glory go to God, to the Father, to the Son for accomplishing this redemption, to the Spirit for giving us this mysterious second birth and this supernatural power to understand grace and to embrace it and believe in it. If you're proud of being a Christian because of some sort of misplaced reliance on your own wisdom to see God, you were wise enough, I was wise enough to see that he was right and that I should just turn and believe in these things. And please repent for all of our salvation is of grace. And thus, the Son and the Father get all the glory. So the disciples are this gift from the Father to the Son. The disciples are also, which is on the other side of the coin we were just talking about, the disciples are also those who have, given, who have been given the supernatural undeserved gift, but actually knowing the truth and embracing it as true and receiving it as true. These words that the Son gave them, these truths that Jesus gave them and were transmitted to them through the Son from the Father. The disciples have realized that no one since the prophets of old has been able to speak with such truth, this reality-matching truth that Jesus did. And though they were awoken spiritually by the Spirit in a mysterious way that John talked talk to us all about in John 3, it's not as if we are pre-programmed robots that we will just go when the button is pushed. We are plucked out of rebellion. We are given the ability to see God's gracious grace and love. And we are compelled by that to respond with all our hearts in faith. The Bible does not teach that we are robots. But rather, we are living, thinking, believing creatures who are given based on God's wise and loving prerogative and not conditioned on anything inside of ourselves, the ability to truly recognize and respond to divine love and salvation. Finally, the disciples are those who are in the world, but not of the world. Every follower of Jesus will experience both personally and in proximity the pain and brokenness that this world, this opposition to God and all its forces brings. But we do not join in that opposition 
His disciples are no longer cut from that cord. They are new creatures in Christ. Though it it has not reached its full maturity yet in them, the Spirit has not fully indwelt them yet, it is coming. And in a sense, this applies to all Christians across all time. We were rebels. We were sinners, lovers of evil. And we struggle even now. But we've been washed, we've been made new, our desires have changed, our allegiance has changed from that which opposes God to that which embraces him as holy and ourselves as sinful and sees our need for salvation and empowerment to change. How often do we, though, continually become entangled with the world? How often do we stumble in sin as a direct result of the brokenness and pain of this world crashing in on us. I'm stressed because of work or school, so just one quick look or one taste or an indulgence in the forbidden, that'll do the trick. It won't do the trick. My friend, my spouse, my sibling, they don't understand what I'm going through. I'll shut down or I'll shame them the next chance I get. Friends, We can experience the brokenness without breaking. We can experience the fall without falling. This is what Jesus is praying for for his disciples. It's what he's praying for for us. After identifying his disciples, he does go on and pray for them. He prays for two things specifically, that they would be protected and that they would be sanctified. God prays most directly here. Jesus prays most directly for the 11 disciples that are left with him after Judas bounces in betrayal. And in the second half of verse 11, Jesus prays that God the Father will keep them in his name. Now what does this mean? Keep them in his name. If we keep reading, we see in verse 12 that Jesus, up until now, has been the one keeping these disciples in the Father's name guarding them, not losing one of them, except the one from the beginning was committed to destruction. We saw into Judas's heart, remember when the perfume bottle was broken and his heart was totally darkened and turned away from Jesus and his mission and his value and toward himself and his selfish gain. And Jesus has been protecting the 11 from those same desires and keeping them faithful to his word Even to this day, the great evil one and those who serve him are prowling around looking for those that love creation more than the creator. He's looking for a foothold in the soul to tear anyone away from even the hint of an outward posture of faithfulness. He's looking for someone to devour to destroy, to draw into eternal death. And yet, those whom the Son keeps, those who the Son holds fast, he now asks the Father to hold fast. And friends, when Jesus prays something, it happens. So if you are truly in Christ, and you are truly in his name, and you are truly trusting in the cross, and the cross alone for salvation, he's praying this for you, and it will come true. You will be kept. You can bank on that. But if you are going through the motions of Christianity, or if you have not yet embraced 
the gospel, then there is no promise for you that you will be kept. This is for those who are truly in his name and believe in his power to save alone. Being kept in God's name means being kept believing in and living out the truth that Jesus has been teaching. The goodness, the character, the salvation that he brings in growing measure year after year, day after day, week after week. Though there will be bumps along the road for every Christian, this keeping of the Father will unify these disciples, soon apostles to be, around this one resurrected God-man, around the one message of hope that his life and death and resurrection brings, and around this mission to spread this truth to the whole world. And in that sense, it's a bit of a defensive prayer. Protect them, Father. Jesus is praying a bit defensively here, but he's also praying offensively. Sanctify them, Father. Set them apart. Set these 11 men specifically apart for service and for mission. The disciples will be given power to write down enough of Jesus' words and his deeds to usher in some from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And we are witnesses of this. We are products of this very prayer. In order to do this The Father will have to unify these men around this message of hope, around this message of truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. Create in them a fidelity to the truth that will strengthen them and that will reach to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus is praying for right here. Jesus is not interested in their temporal safety any more than he's interested in his own. Notice he doesn't pray for that. That's absent from his prayer. Just read the bloody book of Acts or the pages of church history to see what a brutal fate these 11 men faced because of their faithfulness, because of their set-apartness in the truth. His word is truth. Jesus is asking the Father to set them apart from the world. Distinguish these men from the world. Distinguish them in love and in resolve and in unity around my words. Then send them out in service to me as their king and our kingdom. In love for one another and in truth for the world. Because we have the rest of our Bible, namely the book of Acts and all the letters that the apostles wrote. So the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of the Apostles we know that they were indeed sanctified. They were set apart to preach and to teach. And now the church actually exists. It existed in its infancy. It was built up by these men, by the Spirit in its infancy. And then their words are what we've clung to as inspired by the Holy Spirit even now, today, as the the church spreads throughout the world. Jesus is not saying, just take me home. He's saying, Father, make it clear who your disciples are down here. Let's transform them, let's set them apart, let's empower them, let's send them out. Of course, the evil one can still inflict damage to these disciples, and he will, but his power to rule over them and his power to win in the end is over. 
what then are we to do? What then are we to do as Christians, as, especially Christian parents? When we think of this whole being in the world and not of the world, should we just withdraw and retreat from the world? Hide away in our Christian churches and our Christian schools and our Christian circles of friends, frequent, frequenting only Christian businesses and protecting our children and ourselves from any influence that sounds remotely un, unchristian. This weekend in Denver, one of the players on our team walked up to me and they called me the pastor because um, they figured out what I am. And he goes, hey, have you heard this song by Ed Sheeran? And Eminem. I was like, eh, Ed Sheeran? Maybe it's a romantic song or something. Um, Eminem? Probably not. And I said, no, I haven't heard it. What's it called? A river, he says. It's called a river. Kids, don't go looking for it without your parents. But my kids are sitting right there. And they hear about it. Their interest peaks. We want to hear this. They're really into music right now. My kids are like, downloading music on Amazon. It's on my account. I can limit what's coming in and out. But I want to give them enough freedom right now to taste the bitterness of the lies that this world wants to tell them. So what did we do? We left that game. We went home and got on Apple Music and listened to this music. And Ivan's like, I think I heard a word in there. Didn't sound like a good word. I was like, yeah, good ears. You heard a bad word in there. So I just look up the lyrics and start reading them out loud. Talk about a raw expression of the brokenness of this world and sexual promiscuity and the heartache that that brings. It even deals with abortion in there. Such a dark song. And yet, I could do one of two things. I could say, boys, don't you ever listen to anything like that ever again. Or I could ask them thoughtful questions and say, where, are, where is this song telling us the truth? Is there any truth worth redeeming out of this song? How about just that? How sexual promiscuity and using human beings leads to utter brokenness and heartache. They're expressing it over and over. They don't know where the source of their hope should be. They don't know where the solution is. They leave us wanting a solution. That's true. There's some truth in here. And where does this song, where does this movie, where does this book lie to us? Where does it tell us lies? Help them identify that. Of course, it has to be age appropriate. But insulating ourselves from all opposition to God in the world will not produce disciples who are ready to engage that world and ready to remain in fidelity and faith to the word as they see it in contrast to the world. What they're going to do is grow up and become 18 and have their own phone and have their own internet access and go, these are things I've never learned to process at all. So let me engage them completely and on equal footing with that which I was told by my overprotective parents. We're feeling it, parents. We feel what you feel. You want to protect them, but you also want to train them. Think of Jesus cutting his disciples loose and yet being with them as he sends them into the world unto their deaths for the sake of the message. Trusting that as they repent and they believe in the gospel, they will be kept faithful. 
Jesus did not expect his disciples or his future disciples to form Christian compounds with no exposure to the world. His apostles, they led the way by staying absolutely distinct from the world, unified in faith, unified in love with one another, unified in truth, committed to raising up the next generation to do the same, to be able to process that which opposes God and to contrast it with what is true and right and beautiful and good. What about you? What mistake do you think that your unbelieving family and friends most often make about you? That you are like them, of the world. You love everything they love. You prioritize everything they prioritize. You break under the same things that they break under. Or, perhaps on the other end of that scale, are we so checked out from unbelievers that we don't even know them well enough to know what they think about us or what they think about God or what struggles they're facing that are very similar to the struggles we're facing and yet are facing them without any hope or the light of the gospel and the love of the triune God to solve it. This is what Jesus is praying directly for his disciples. And he's praying that we would follow in their footsteps. Now, before we go on to what he prays for, for the, those in the future who will believe, more specifically, I, I was reading through the Bible reading plan. I know it's difficult to keep up. I've had my seasons this year already where I'm like, I'm like two books behind. Either drop the book, catch up, or just mow through and catch up. But keep reading, keep intaking the truth, keep being set apart by the truth of God's word. But I was in Jeremiah this week. I think I'm almost caught up. And in Jeremiah, it was striking how opposite of what Jesus is praying for us here seemed to characterize God's people, especially in the days of the kings and especially in the days of the exile, right up until the time when God punished them for their lack of faith. God is sending his word over and over to his people through the prophets. He commands them, listen, realize the folly of your disobedient, self-absorbed lives, your misdirected worship, your idolatry, which the prophets accurately and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit call spiritual promiscuity. How do they respond? How do God's people respond? Are they softened? Do they turn from their futile ways? No, most often they double down against the Lord and his messenger, don't they? God tells Jeremiah, listen to this, speak these words of warning, correction, salvation to them, but they will not listen to you. This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. And what is the result? Jeremiah goes on, truth has perished. It has cut off from their lips. They've turned away in perpetual backsliding, holding fast to deceit, refusing to return, telling one another, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Then we see this lack of faithfulness to truth, which Jesus is praying for for his future disciples. We see this lack of faithfulness to the truth actually dividing God's people. Jeremiah warns, let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in your brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor is a slanderer. Everyone deceives. No one speaks the truth. 
They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They even weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, deceit upon deceit. And how does Jeremiah summarize this rebellion? They refuse to know me. So what's the problem? And what makes us think Jesus is going to actually be able to solve that problem? The problem in the Old Testament is more fundamental than just occasional disobedience or idolatry. It's that God has not yet brought his word and his spirit in this new covenantal way. What was temporary and occasional is now going to be permanent and forever in his people. Jesus gives profound insight into his perfect and personal anticipation that what has been weak and temporal in the past through repentance and faith for centuries will now give way to a permanent indwelling of the Godhead in his people, keeping them forever. Of course, there are glimmers of hope in the Old Testament pointing us forward to Jesus. Isaiah says, my, my people will know my name. Jeremiah himself says there will be a circumcision beyond the flesh, and it is coming, one in their hearts, a new spiritual people made up of some from every tribe, language, and people. This is where we're headed. This is where we are, friends. But this does leave us wondering, will it work? Has it worked? How well is it working Perhaps the disciples were wondering that, but Jesus was not wondering. That's one wonderful thing about Jesus praying is everything he prays is destined to be accomplished. So we trust in him. We trust that what Jesus prays for future believers, namely us and all those who believe around the world, will come true. So this is our last part, verse 20 to 26. Jesus prays for the church. Is Jesus counting chickens before they hatch here? It seems he's a bit presumptuous. And for all those who are going to believe in the future through their ministry, through their words, all the guys around him right then are going to abandon him before the night's over. And Peter himself is going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. But when you are the one who thought up chickens and eggs, You're allowed to count them before they hatch. Jesus is praying now for the church, the church to come, the church that he knows will be gifted to him from the Father in the future. And he's praying that we would be united and that we would be perfected. He's praying just like he did for his disciples in this last section. He would He's praying that we would be sustained by faith, sustained by love, sustained by permeating unity of faith and obedience, both in the generations to come after the apostles and in us. He's asking his Father to unite Christians to one another in a fidelity and in a love that he and the Father have shared forever. And Guys, as we experience this, as we experience this faith and this love that is a gift from God, we actually become the contact point for each other and for the world that witnesses what divine love feels like. We, as Christians, 
We are. We ought to be in the Father and in the Son, so identified with the God and dependent upon Him for life and fruitfulness that the people around you, the people sitting in the pews next to you, the people who know you in the community get this impression of divine love off of you. So how's that going for you? We ought to ask ourselves this often. If we're a member here at Christ Church, then, in a, then we have at least as a congregation affirmed one another's profession in faith in the gospel. That's a big part of what membership means and why many of you went through that process. To be affirmed in your profession of faith and to join in the affirmation of that faith of others in this world. But would you say that this has been followed by a love from you to this body that is rooted in the Father's love for the Son? We should ask ourselves this often. Are people around us in Christ church feeling God's love through us on a regular basis? Are people feeling like the way she loves me is the way the Father loved the Son and the way the Son loved her and I feel it through her when she prays for me, when she reaches out to me. This has many implications for us, Christ Church, when we come here on Sundays, is our attitude, oh, I'm on the setup team again today. Or Christ Church kids again? <laughs> or yes. I get to display the Father's love for the Son. I've tasted it this week. I'm here to display it. Bring on the terrible twos. I'm preaching the gospel to them today. Giving their parents a break. Let them sit under the word in there. How about your commitment to your gospel community and the folks there? When you break up into discipleship group time, are you secretly hoping that the messy stuff does not come up today? Or are you digging in on purpose? Are you asking? Are you praying? Are you hoping for an opportunity to meet up again outside of this? To, to, to open up the scriptures together? To pray more together? To perhaps read a book on that specific topic? On anxiety? Because you're dealing with that all the time. Or lust or perfectionism or whatever it might be. And how the gospel addresses that and how Jesus empowers us to be transformed out of that. Are you humbly putting your dirty laundry out on the table and humbly being vulnerable to ask for help from others, to ask for prayer from others? Asking them to be God's mechanism for loving you and showing unity to this world and what it looks like. And how about that's, that's, that's upward, that's out, inward. What about outward? How is your commitment to helping motivate and mobilize your gospel community towards serving the marginalized? Would you rather retweet about an injustice in this city or in this world than actually taking the time to lock arms with other Christians and be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world so that they might know that Jesus was sent by the Father and his people are now sent into the city? Friends, we've got to realize that Jesus is praying for us here. 
And I'm really blessed to tell you all that though these are hard words for every one example I think of or come across of struggle in these areas, I come across 10 of success and blessedness that's happening right now in this church. And I'm so, so thankful that even as I look into your eyes and think about the stories in your lives and how we share as gospel community leaders with one another and pray for one another as we serve you and as elders, as we do that, we are blessed by you. And I just want you to know that I feel God's divine love through you. And we ought to be asking for God to do that all the more so that we might taste and see that he is good in unity with one another. We already sang about it a bit. We're gonna sing it about it here again. We must share an eternal love and an eternal life as we trust in Christ as it comes from the Father. Jesus did assume in this prayer a measure of unity already existing. But he prays that it might be brought to perfection, complete unity. Not just sharing shallowly in purpose and love and mission as a church, but richly. And all the more as we see the day coming. Let's pray for that now. Father, what else can we pray for now? than what Jesus himself has prayed for us. Lord, keep us faithful to your name, to the message and to the accomplished mission of Jesus on the cross, to your son himself, to the recognition of your glorious grace in our lives and in our church. Lord, keep us, we pray, from loving the things of this world more than you. Help us to be in this world, not of this world. Help us to be unified, self-sacrificing, gospel-loving, others-serving people growing in your love until made perfect in your presence. Do this, we pray, for your glory so that many more who are of this world now might join us and be out of the world and in your name. Glorify yourself in us. Glorify yourself through us. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.